0: All right. So Second Corinthians chapter three. Um, last week Michael um, preached, and just the end of the passage from chapter two just talks about the the triumph that we have in Christ. And then in chapter three, it's going to go more into you know the why of why, why we have that triumph in Christ, like what's our foundation and our basis for that. But he begins in just a little bit of, of practicality in chapter three. He says, "Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others?" Epistles of commendation to you are letters of commendation from you. You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. So he's, you know, with the difficulties that that the Apostle Paul has had um, with the church in Corinth, um, you know, he, he's had a lot of good and he's had some, some bad there, it, he kind of makes a statement, you know, do we need to commend ourselves to you, like, or do we need letters of commendation for you, you know, to validate, you know, our ministry? And that's an interesting thing. You might not be that familiar with letters of commendation, but they were very common in the early church. If, you know, someone was coming in, um, you know, you kind of wanted to know who that person was, and there were a lot of reasons for that. It could be somebody coming from the outside for a variety of purposes. Perhaps it was um, you know, to, to spy on and give a report you know, to, the, to the government of what's happening there. Perhaps it's someone who's coming in who has a different agenda than that of Jesus and is trying to you know, divide the church or to bring others to, to have followers for themselves. And so a letter of commendation was common. And this letter would come from the, you know, from the church at Ephesus to the church at Corinth. You know, accept so and so as brothers and sisters um, in the Lord. Um, and so that was a common sort of thing, and that still happens. Actually, um, a couple of years ago, I had the privilege to go down to Honduras. But the church there, they wanted letters, um, and so the connection to that church in Honduras was from our friends in the church in. Um, in Mexico. And so they wanted uh, letters from the elders of the church here and from the elders of the church in Mexico saying that I was valid. You know, they weren't just letting, you know, some wacko come in there and do whatever he wanted to do, but that it was somebody that could be trusted. And that's a very helpful thing. Now, a lot of times we don't use letters. We, you know, we use email or we make a phone call. Hey, do you know this person? Are they legitimate. But you know, if you think about it, even in businesses, you, know, you do this. In, in, bus- in the business world, when, you, when somebody applies for a job, they usually don't just apply for a job and that's it. There's usually you know, letters of reference or a number that you have to give of different people that, okay, these people can call and, and vouch for you that you're going to be a good employee. And so if, it's, if that's done in the business world, um, you know, it shouldn't be surprising to us that in something that's much more important you know the church that that would be um, a common thing to protect people within the church, and it really um, it really should be done. And the reason, you know, just for, for even just for safety of people, um, how many times have someone who is really just a bad person been able to wreak havoc in a church and um, even mess with kids, and then nobody does anything about it, and the person's able to go on to another place and do the same thing because the standards are so low. Um, in so many places of, um, any sort of expectation of validity to start serving. So, okay. But Paul says, here, I don't need these things because you are our letters to the church at Corinth. You, you are the validation for us. Remember he had planted that church. He had lived there for 18 months. Um, you know, he's been to visit them. He's written letters to them, um, you know, he prays for them, you know, constantly. But he says, you know, these, you know, people, you, you the Church of Corinth, you are, are letters and that it's not written on, you know, tablets of stone. And there he's referring back even like to the Old Testament law. You know, at this point they're not writing on tablets of stone. They're using, you know, parchment and things of that nature. Uh, but he says, I don't have to do that because it's written on your hearts. And there he's even given a clue as to what he's going to be talking about as we're coming into his discussion about the New Covenant. And so let's read in verse 4, 4 through 6, it says, And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the New Covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. But the, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, there's a couple of really important things going on right here in these just few verses. I want to hit those uh, because they, they're going to mean a lot to us. But the first of, of it is that you know, Paul is saying that neither he nor any of the other apostles nor anyone in any church can claim that they are sufficient, that they have sufficiency within themselves. But no, your sufficiency comes from Christ. He is the sufficient one. He is the all in all, and he is the one who um, is really what the new covenant is all about. And that, you know, Paul and and others and even the church at Corinth, you know, we're all just ministers of this new covenant. We don't make it. The power isn't from us. The covenant isn't from us. It's from God. But we are the ones who are ministers of it. We are the ones who share it. Um, And we need to remember the words of Jesus when he said to his disciples from the night that he was betrayed. And he told his disciples, um, you know, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And obviously that nothing, what he's talking about there is, you know, that, that uh, things that are going to last for eternity, the, the really important things of life, you can't do those apart from Christ. Um, on the one hand, and on the other hand, we know from Colossians that he actually holds, you know, it's Christ that holds the whole universe together, that really without him you can't even breathe. But specifically here talking about, you know, ministry and the things that, that are eternal things, you can't do those apart from Christ. And when I talk about ministry and ministers, you know, sometimes people get um, confused by that. Uh, you know, we, we want to see, you know, Paul is called a, into a special place as an apostle, and he has that ministry of an apostle, and he's, you know, one that is, you know, devoting his life to this and uh, going full time with it uh, to tell everyone that he can. Uh, but everyone who shares the New Covenant and who takes part in the New Covenant is a minister, you know, it's, it's one who serves. You know, everyone is to be a servant. You know, we talk about, you know, and, and many churches have this this teaching from the Bible, and it's true, you know, the priesthood of all believers, that we believe, you know, be, you know, if you come to know Jesus, that, you know, you have access to God, and you can pray, and you can serve, and you can, you know, you can use whatever spiritual gift God has given you for God's glory and honor, and that if you're a follower of Jesus, God is going to give you a spiritual gift that's to be served, to use in service, to the benefit of other people, for the glory of God. And so we all, you know, that know Christ, have something to use. Now, some may be called to, you know, be of a, a, you know, that's what you do and you don't take on, you know, other sorts of work. Um, Others are going to be called to go to different places and to be ministries and others are going to be called to serve in the church but also to, you know, have jobs or to, you know, whatever myriad of things there are to do in, in life. But, we're all to have a ministry, and that ministry is to be centered on the new covenant. That ministry is to be centered on the new covenant. Because really, that's what we are all about. So now he make, Paul makes this contrast He's, between the new and the old. He says, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And throughout the New Testament, we see this teaching about the Old Covenant. That the Old Covenant, the Law of Moses, it was given, it had a ministry of condemnation. Think about that. Its job was to condemn. Its job was to say, you don't meet God's standards. You don't meet God's standards of holiness. That God is perfect and you're not. The whole thing was to show that. Very clearly that you are not sufficient on your own, but you know you need you need God, you need a savior, a messiah, um, and really that everything is a picture of that new covenant everything in the old covenant is a picture to the new covenant of what 's going to happen that you know these these sacrifices that were made um, in the temple are temporary, they were temporary, and they were to show that there 's going to become a one ultimate sacrifice. You know, the Lamb of God slain for our sins and that he was going to give us a new covenant. But the purpose of the old covenant is not, is really not to save people, but to show people their need for salvation. But the new covenant, the purpose of it is to save. And really, really, as we see it, you know, as, as we see in the book of Romans, it says that Abraham was justified by faith. So even in the old covenant, if somebody was really going to be justified before God, it wasn't through, you know, the the law and the keeping of the law, but even then it was through faith in God and trusting him and trusting him that he would keep his promises and that you know what, what God said was going to happen, you know, would happen. And so theirs was a forward looking faith. And ours is a faith where we're looking back at the cross. They're looking forward and we're looking back to the cross. And so we're in a much better position because we see the fulfillment of all that. Mm -hmm. So we're in a much better position, but it's still for both. It would come down to, to faith because the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. All right. Verse 7, But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, because of the glory that excels. For what if passing away was glorious. What remains is much more glorious. So when you know Moses went up on you know the mountain and and he had his encounter with God and he you know the the tablets God writes all the tablets and Moses you know takes that down when he came down off the mountain you know his his face had um, reflected the glory of God. And so he put a veil on, even, but, that, but that glory that it had was not permanent. It was fading away, and that was even symbolic that the Old Covenant would be something that was going to fade away, that it was temporary in nature and not per- permanent, just like the glory that Moses received from it you know, faded away. But notice it says that it was glorious, that the Old Covenant was glorious, even though it was a ministry of condemnation. It was a ministry of death, but it was glorious because it served a purpose. But then comparatively speaking, verse 10, for even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. And so what he's saying here is the same thing that the author of Hebrews says. When you compare the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, you know, there's no contest. Comparatively speaking, it's like you know something has glory, but then, comparatively speaking, there's no glory. There's no glory, um, and and we see this a lot of times. You know, even um, you know in our in our daily lives between you know things that things that people do. Uh, you know, if a uh, if a school age child you know writes you know a few sentences in a book, you say, "Man, that is that has a glory to it. That is that is awesome." But now maybe compared to a novel, of, you know, some, after that person writing for 30 or 40 years and has a real gift for that, you, know, you compare their first book with their 40th book and you go, eh, well, the first one wasn't all that great, you know, comparatively speaking. But if you just took it on its own, you go, man, that's pretty good. And so here, what we're seeing is, hey, just by itself, if you only had the old covenant, you'd say, yes, it's glorious, but when you compare it to the new, there's no contest. Listen to Hebrews nine. I'll just read this for you. Some verses from Hebrews nine. It says, "Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behold, the second veil. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna." and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance." The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place was not yet disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until a time of reformation. Now here's the key. Verse 11 But when Christ appears as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And we see that you know this was this was passing away and even as Paul the old covenant was passing away and even as Paul was writing this you know he writes it it's clear that he writes it before AD 70 when the temple in Jerusalem is you know utterly destroyed um, but it's coming soon and its usefulness its usefulness was finished and its function was coming to an end you know altogether um, so then we have this from Hebrews 13:20 20 through 21 it says, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the, fee, of, the, of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now back to 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 12. He says, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we use great boldness of speech. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Okay, now listen to this. It says that their minds were blinded, and that a veil still remains on many of these people. Their minds were blinded a veil still remains on many of them. So when they hear the reading of the Old Testament, they're not seeing Christ in it the way that they should see Christ in it. Because you know, when, when we read the Old Testament you know, through, the, through the lens of the New Covenant, we see Christ all over the place as we read it. He's there. Um, and remember, Jesus, even when he was, after his resurrection, and he was walking down the road and he hadn't, really revealed himself to uh, two disciples that were walking along there, he explained to him all the things concerning himself from the Old Testament, from the, the law and the prophets. You now, All those things had to be fulfilled. So how then is a person, how does a per, how is that veil remove? Well, first of all, how did that veil get there? And I'm not going to go really into chapter 4, but in chapter 4 he tells us that the God of this age has blinded their eyes. They don't see. We have a real enemy in the spiritual war, Satan, and he has blinded their eyes. So how is the veil uncovered? Verse 16, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That's how the veil is taken away. It's, It's really, you know, through Christ and it's... And, and how do they have, at this point, you know, because Christ is not physically on the earth, how do they see Christ or how do they hear about Christ? Well, that's through the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that Jesus died for our sins and that he, you know, rose from the dead. And so that, you know, hearing that and, and seeing, you know, the, even Romans says, you know, how are they going to believe in one they've not heard about? You know, how, how beautiful are the feet of those who share the gospel of peace? Excuse me. So, you know, people need to be presented, you know, with the Lord. And, and, you know, we know that there's the work of the Holy Spirit that convicts people, you know, of their sin. And so, when somebody's convicted of their sin and they turn to the Lord, um, then that veil is rem- removed. And I want to be really clear about that for a second because I think sometimes the way we present Jesus to people, Is dangerous. The way that Jesus gets presented to people in many times, in many cases, it's kind of like, oh, you know, you 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 have problems in your life. Well, Jesus can make those better. Or, um, you know, you want to be a better person. Well, you know, Jesus can make you a better person. It's kind of like Jesus is like a self help sort of. You know, it's like, it's like he, he, he actually, you know, instead of 12 steps, you just got one step. It's Jesus, and he kind of takes care of the 12 steps for you, you know, and he just makes you a better person. And, and don't you want to be a better person? It's kind of the appeal with that. Well, lots of people want to be better people. You know, I want to be a better person, so I'm going to, you know, get some more education. I want to improve myself, or I'm going to learn this skill or that skill. I'm going to be a, a better person. Or I'm going to go to an anger management class because I know I get angry, and so I want to be a better person. Jesus is not like that. How Jesus makes us a better person is that He transforms us, and He gives us—you know—He gives us a new life. With a new covenant comes a new life, but that doesn't happen just from a person saying yes. I want to be a better person, and Jesus sounds like a good way to be a better person. So, yeah, I'll take Jesus. That's fine. That's not it. There has to be this reckoning of, I am a person who is sinful, who has offended a holy God, that I deserve God's punishment. I deserve to pay for my sins myself, but Jesus took my place and died in my place. Because I'm not good enough, and I can't be good enough. And it's not just about making the old better, but about making something new. We get that? So we need to to stop with the, hey, Jesus will just make you a better person, to know Jesus wants to make you a new person, Because you as you are doesn't cut it before God. And by the world standards, you might even be a great person. But it's all again, what are we comparing to? We can make most people in our community look pretty good when we compare with the worst in our world. But we can't make anyone look good in comparison to God. Because he is holy and he is perfect. And none of us look good on our own in our sinful flesh next to him. Again, it's, you know, it's one of those things earlier we talked about for It's no contest. I mean, this is really, there never was a contest. I mean, there's just nothing there that we have to offer. And so there has to be that reckoning. That understanding. Lord, save me. I'm a sinner. You know, really, that's what it has to come down to. But that's kind of, you know, that, that's an unpopular message in a culture that wants us to tell everyone you're good enough just how you are and that you're accepted just how you are. Well, You're not good enough just how you are. You are accepted just how you are in that you are invited to the new life in Christ. You don't have to change in order to accept the invitation. But accepting that invitation will change you. We get that? You don't have to change who you are to accept that invitation. In fact, you can't really. Do that in the substantial way that I mean. Yeah, you can you can take care of the external things. You know, if you're a person that just screams and shouts at people, yeah, you can stop screaming and shouting at people. You're a person that you know just curses every other word. Well, you can stop cursing every word, every other word. You can do that, but you can't change that heart. Found you know fundamentally, but you can accept that invitation to have your heart changed to become a new creation in Christ. Now it says as well here, now, we'll read that again, verse 16, Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. A couple things really quick there. Um, this doesn't contradict what the Bible teaches about the persons of the true and living God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These verses do affirm the deity of the Holy Spirit. And that's important. The Son and the Spirit are distinct per- persons, but what Paul is getting at here is that they are one in purpose in relation to the new covenant. Because the whole thing here is he's talking about the new covenant. So Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. It says, for there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Okay, 1 Timothy 2.5. But the Spirit is the conveyor of the new covenant. Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage or slavery, again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Jesus also said in um, John 15.26, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. So one is the mediator of the New Covenant, Jesus, and the other is the conveyor or the, or the transmitter of the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit. He's the one who testifies. He's the one who even testifies in people's you know, innermost beings that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. <coughs> so now he makes a statement. He says, "...with the Spirit of the Lord is there is liberty." So, we have to ask the question this morning are you a free person this morning? Are you a free person? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Are you a free person? That you are, you're free from the penalty of sin, that you're free from the, the uh, consequences of sin, and from the power of sin. That you are a free person this morning, that you're not a slave. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, the question isn't only, (coughs) excuse me, are you free, but are we using our freedom in the right way? Because if you know Christ, you are free. But unfortunately, even as Paul tells in the book of Romans, that some people will voluntarily go back into slavery of sin. Go back and become slaves again of sin. Voluntarily. Well, we shouldn't do that. Here we're told how to use our freedom. Verse 18, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So here we're told... You know, really how to use our liberty, how to use our freedom, because we're seeing the glory of the Lord, and we're being transformed into the same glory. Now, if you go to Romans 12, um, and we can just very quickly, Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove was that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So that transformation is the same here. It's that transformation that's a you know a continuous process until you know we either die and, and we're with Christ or until Christ returns. But that is a transformation, you know, from. Glory to glory. So, for the follower of Jesus, the person who's been made a new creation through faith in Christ, who've been received you know, a new life, you're a new creation. There should there should be a process that you're going from, you know, that new creation becoming from glory to glory, more and more like Jesus is. So, if you've known Jesus, if you've been a follower of Jesus for five years, you should be. You know, more like Jesus now than you were when you first started. And the same thing at 10 years and 15 and 20 and 25 and 30 and 35, and 40, 40, on down the line. As long as you're on this earth, it should be coming more and more. We should not be, you know, we all do obviously make mistakes, we, we sin, we fail, but there should not be this continuous regression. When there's ever regression, it should be very temporary, it should be confessed. We should then become, be becoming more and more like Christ. And this is what the Spirit of God works in us, but also there, there has to be our cooperation on that. Even in the Romans 12, too, it says, you know, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And so we constantly need to have our minds renewed because our minds are prone to you know, think back according to the flesh because we still carry around our flesh with us. So there's this kind of battle. How am I, you know, am I going to become more like Christ or am I going to regress back to what the flesh is like? And that's a consistent thing that goes on. But we have to determine among ourselves that we are going to be firm in the Lord and that we are going to do the things that we need to do for that renewing of our minds to take place. And what are those things? Those things are, you know, spending time with God and His Word and in prayer. The the more we do that, the more our minds are going to be renewed, right? Uh, By being, you know, in our fellowship um, in the church and, you know, hearing the Word of God and sharing the Word of God with one another, we're going to be renewed through that. Even through the sharing of our faith, there's renewal that comes through that, the renewing of our mind. Because we have a purpose and we have a focus. And that purpose and focus is to be people who are sharing in the ministry of the new covenant. You know, that we are sharing in that. So we're helping one another to be people who are more, living our lives more in line with the new covenant that Jesus gave us. Because that's our identity in him. And we're trying to share that new covenant with other people so that other people can enjoy the benefits of it. And really, I think that we've missed, oftentimes we've missed a a really big piece in the why we live the way, why live the way the Word of God instructs us to live. We've missed a big piece of that. I think we've gotten pretty well the piece where, because God says so. Right? And Hopefully. And obedience is... Like, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Like, obedience is a part of loving God, loving Jesus, submitting ourselves to his will, saying we're not going to do just what we want to do, we're going to do what God wants to do, okay? But there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. There's the sharing in the new covenant. There's the sharing in that ministry, which is really, you know, the mission of Jesus, so, you know, let's say a single person, this throwing out different hypotheticals, a single person says, okay, I want to have sex with my boyfriend or girlfriend, but because Jesus, you know, the word's clear on that, that I'm supposed to wait till I'm married, I'm not going to do it. Okay. And if that works, if that's all you need for it, then that's, that's good. I mean, and honestly, I mean, that should be enough. That should be enough. But if we take it to another level, but why doesn't God want me to do that? Instead of just saying, well, he doesn't want me to do that. That's the, the why. Why doesn't he want me to do that? Well, there's a whole host of reasons. There's a whole host of reasons about, you know, it's about protecting you, protecting your, your heart, <laughs> Protecting your physical body, but protecting your heart, your emotions, your, you know, all sorts of things. Like, there's, like God's not just trying to take away your fun. He has, he has reasons for why he wants you to, to live this way. And then there's the mission as a key reason for that. Because it's hard to be doing what God wants, doesn't want us to be doing and to be fully participating in his mission at the same time. So we go, well, it's really an issue that's about the mission of Jesus and about my ability to participate in that consistently. Well, now, if we care about the mission of Jesus and that's what's key to our life is the mission of Jesus, then we go, all right, now I've got even more reason. It's like you have reason, but now you've got even much more reason. And you can take that to anything, you know, when it comes to the things we're not supposed to do. Like, you know, gossip. Well, I like to gossip. It's fun to gossip. I want to hear the stories and I want to share the stories. Well, one, the word says don't gossip, okay. But two, gossiping actually really hurts the mission of Jesus and hurts our ability to share in that mission. So, that's why we shouldn't do that. It's another big reason not to do that. But even in the positive things then, because sometimes we don't want to do the positive things. Like, we do want to do the negatives. We don't want to do the positives. we got it, like, mixed up. So why should I serve my neighbor or love my neighbor? Well, because the Word says so. And it's critical to the mission. So, you know, that's, that's where we're going with this. It's, like there's a, it's kind of like this two-prong. It's not just one approach to helping us to live how Christ wants us to live. It's obey and mission. It's about obedience and it's about the mission. And you find, might find, you know, at different points in your life or different moments in your life, one of those reasons more compelling than another. But hopefully, one of those two reasons, you know, grabs us and calls us to say, well, this is how God wants me to live. This is how God wants me to live. And so I'm going to do it. And because his mission is worthy. And it's worthy to share in. Remember, without that mission, we're all still lost in our sins. Without the ministry and mission of the new covenant, we're all still lost in our sins. Without the sacrifice of others, without others saying, I'm going to obey God and be about his mission, we don't get to participate in the new covenant. So, because that's just how God has made it, where we as the church are the vehicle. We're his vehicle, we're, we're the, the tool that's used for the new covenant. So, we should be being transformed to be more and more like Christ. And I've just been doing some other study. I know not too long ago we went through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, and um, in our house fellowships or smaller groups. And we looked at you know that in, in pretty good detail, but one of the things that we talked about was the, what we call the Beatitudes, or the Blesseds. Um, they're at the beginning that Jesus has, and it's not just that these are categories of people, but this, these Blesseds give the character of the disciple, the character of the disciple of Christ. And so just listen to them real quick. Poor in spirit, or humble, you could use that word, but poor in spirit... blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the persecuted. So think about that as, well the last one the persecuted is kind of the result (laughs) of some of that. But humble mourn, one who mourns, one who is meek, one who hunger and thirst for righteousness, one who is merciful, one who is pure in heart, one who is a peacemaker. So that's the character. And then listen to the fruit of the Spirit. Again, that fruit is singular. And these are different attributes of that singular fruit. From Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So, we see all of this in the life of Jesus, right? We we see he he perfectly makes that... um, I mean, he's the, perfect, he's the perfect one that has the character that he's looking for in his disciples. One who is poor in spirit, one who, is, you know, one who mourns, one who is meek, one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, one who is merciful, one who is, who is pure in heart, one who is a peacemaker. And no one was more persecuted that result than he was as he went to the cross for us. And in that fruit of the spirit, anyone other more than Jesus have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. So these are this is a good check for us. Okay, do I have the character of of a disciple? And is the fruit of the spirit, you know, what a disciple is going to show forth in his life, is that clear? In my life. And so when you, you know, Jesus says you'll know them by their fruit, and so we kind of have two options here. And, and this is kind of harsh for myself and for all of us. Don't eliminate myself from this examination at all. But there's kind of two choices here. If these things are not present, if somebody, you know, says, well, I'm going to describe this person and, and this isn't the description, the Beatitudes and the fruit of the Spirit, then the questions are one do i really know jesus has he made me a new creation and a new person or two have i do, i do really know him but i've regressed and i'm not being transformed from glory to glory and becoming like him because i've been sidetracked by sin and the cares of this world and by other things and so i got to change, and I can't change me. I need Jesus to change me, but I've got to be willing to be changed and to have this transformation happen in my life. You know, the the reality is, you know, it's kind of scary living in the South in the southeastern part of the United States, in the quote-unquote Bible Belt. It's kind of scary living here. Because in many places, in many cultures in the world, like if you're a follower of Jesus, it, it has a real cost to it, and so there aren't that many games that are played. It's kind of like, you're, 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 if you're in this, then you know, you're in this. Because there's a lot of sacrifice required to be part of this. But in the Bible Belt, it's actually sometimes just very advantageous just in a cultural way to be someone who goes, you know, attends church meetings and, you know, shows up on Sunday and smiles at people and looks nice. And, you know, I think our churches are full of people, are full of people who know Jesus is a good idea for their lives, And they view him as a nice helper, kind of like that twelve-step program that just kind of shortcuts some of that stuff. But he's not savior, and he's not king. So that's really what the question has come down to: is like, is he is he your savior? Is he and is he your king? And those things really are to go together. You know, and, and again, that's, again, the emphasis. You know, where we put our emphasis on the gospel, and we should, is you, know, Jesus, you, know, you need Jesus to save you. But we need to be very clear in that. When Jesus saves you, he becomes, by default, I mean, just by who he is, he becomes your king. And so now you need to live in obedience to him. And you need to be about his mission, because when the king says, go and share, when the king says to be a generous person, when the king says to love your neighbor, then we got to go, hey, this is what the king is about. We love the king, and and this is his mission. Now, some of that gets kind of skewed, just like everything in our world gets skewed, because of our sinfulness and because of we're limited in our ability to use language, just like when we talk about you know God the Father, that gets skewed for a lot of people because they don't have a good view of what a father is, and they're comparing it to earthly fathers. But again, it's a, not a it's a completely different thing because he's perfect and he's holy and he's good, and even our best fathers can't you know in comparison you know, can't touch that. And same thing's true when it's king, and you know, we think of king in our world as you know this you know authoritarian, domi- you know, domineering, who doesn't care about the subjects. We have a king who died for his people. Our king is radically different. Our king does not look just to use us, you know, for just what he wants, but our king looks for our participation in his mission. And he invites us. He invites us. And that's a beautiful thing. But so that's the questions, the questions that we have for us this morning. Number one, the first one is, you know, and, and we're kind of amiss just because, you know, we, we, can't, we can't assume that just because, you know, people are here that everybody that's here that their heart is right with the Lord, that they've been made a new creation in Christ, so, you know, again, that question, have you humbled yourself before Him? Mean, you said, Lord, save me, I'm a sinner. And I hope that you have, but if you haven't, today's a good day for that. And then, moving forward, for those of us who have done that, or even right after you do that, it's like, you know, we've got to ask that question, is Jesus our king? You know, he's worthy to be it because he is the one who we have the he's he, he is the new covenant really it's jesus you know well you know he's the mediator of it but that new covenant is is through his blood it's um it's all about him and what he's done for us his work and our our gift and our privilege is to share in it is to share in it and that's what we want to do. That's, that's what we want to do. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm thankful. I'm very thankful to be part of a church, who you know, that our hearts are for the mission of God. That we do want other people to participate in this new covenant, and we want people, you know, to grow in their faith. And that really impacts and influences, you know, what we do and how we do it. Uh, when it comes to the you know, church finances, my position a lot of times is that ignorance is bliss. I don't, I don't keep, you know, other people keep the books and do all that sort of stuff and write, you know, the checks. And I do very little of anything to do with that. But we got our, our numbers from last year, from 2014, um, and just where we spent our money. And almost 50% of our money that, we, that went out, that we expended, almost 50% of it went toward mission. It's like, that's good. You know, I mean, com, I mean, most churches don't get to say that. Don't come close to getting to say that. It's like, fortunate if it's 10%. I mean, that's, that's a real missional church if, like, it's 10%. We would view that as a very missional church. But this year, and especially with, you know, the funds we need to raise for Tanzania and those things, I mean, we should be over 50%, and I hope well over 50%. It's like, I pray the Lord would give us more so that more and more of it would go to missions and going out, you know, and that's, you know, that doesn't include what benevolence, that doesn't include what people are doing locally, that doesn't include anything that I receive, that's just out, goes out. And so, you know, it's kind of like, why do you want to be blessed? Personal life. Yeah, everybody wants to be blessed, right? And no, I mean, nobody, I don't hear anybody minding like, Lord, please don't bless me with any more finances. Uh, and I don't know anybody that prays that. But why do you, if, you, you know, if you want to ask for the Lord's blessing in your life, why do you want to be blessed? I hope it's so we can get this new covenant to more people. and we ask in the church, Lord, bless us. Lord, we want to be blessed financially. Why? I hope it's so that we can be a blessing to more people. So we can share more of this new covenant with other people. I mean, I love to get to the point where it's like 90% mission. That's like a dream. That's a dream. Let's get there. You know, but... Still, it's all about our hearts when it comes down to it. Everything else is just the outflow of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your love for us. Lord, we just um we come to you and and those of us who know you, we we just say, Lord, we confess that sometimes you're not king. I mean you are king, you're always king, that's permanent, but in our hearts and in our motivations and what we want to do, Lord. Sometimes we're you're not. So please continue to to shape us, to transform us, to make us more like you, Jesus. We see that you were all in when it came to being the mediator of the new covenant. You didn't hold anything back. You went all the way to the cross for us. And so Lord, where we want to hold back, I pray that you would push us through. Lord, where we're afraid, you would give us courage. Where we're weak, that you would make us strong. And where we're strong, that you would make us humble. Lord, we don't want to live as people who are ungrateful. But we want to give you thanks. Thanks. And we want to live lives that give thanks, and we want the letters that are being written on us to be letters that say that you are Savior and that you are King. So Lord, may that be written on our hearts even this morning. As we take the bread and the cup, uh, this morning we give you thanks, Jesus. Jesus. that your body was sacrificed for us and that your blood was shed for us. And we give you thanks and praise you. In your name, Jesus, amen.